call it whatever you want, soft skill, interpretive skill, listening skill, call it whatever you want. But this process, this is just a mini example of what I believe is an, a, a fundamental key skill and characteristic of someone who's really good at sales. Not someone who can do it, someone who's really good at it, is that they will become a master of getting what I call discovery, facts, information, opinions out of a prospect and using them effectively throughout the sales cycle until they buy. Rod Weir joined Easy Projects almost three years ago, bringing more than two decades of experience in all things sales, sales leadership, business development, partner reseller management, go-to-market design execution, and more. After a number of years in account executive director roles in large tech and telecommunications companies, he moved on to pursue sales in either true startups or in smaller but established software companies. He helped two of the companies where he worked to be acquired. In his first year at Easy Projects, he changed many of the key components of a successful sales team, such as people, process, price, tools, focus on customer success, sales collateral, and achieved a 42% annual revenue growth. The next year's sales grew 24% and were well into this year's achievement. Rod, welcome to the Biggest Win Sales Podcast. Hey, Alexander, how are you? It's, 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 it's sometimes a little bit of embarrassing to hear something like that read back, read back, but I'm, I'm hoping that our audience here can appreciate what, uh, what's behind what you just stated there. Well done. So, Rod, let, let me just ask you off the top, what, what, what were your first couple of sales jobs? Yeah, well, I started, uh, you know, uh, several decades ago now, indicating my age. So my very first sales job was, quite frankly, brutal. Uh, and the reason for that is um, I graduated and then went into uh, selling in a um, in a, where you sell to mutual funds. So it was uh, kind of selling to, you know, people uh, where you, you, you want to promote the study and research that you've done on a company. So you're basically selling opinions. And at that time, probably 10, 12 months in, uh, the stock crash happened. <laughs> I saw an incredibly ugly and seamy and aggressive side of the business in, the, in my you know, first 12 months or less in a sales role. So that was quite a sobering experience. So I ended up transitioning that into, a, I'll call it a, a company that serviced the needs of, of those types of customers where, you know, um, where that went. But then after my master's, I, I would arguably have what I would describe as my first sales role. And for some of your listeners, and even for me now looking back, this is kind of an odd situation. But at the time, I joined Bell Canada, and if you can believe it, even the sales role at Bell Canada was a unionized position. Mm -hmm. So uh, not a true meritocracy as we might think, but it, regardless, it was, at, at least at the time, it was a great place to work, and that basically kicked me off into the sales journey that has ended up on this call here today. Hey, Rod, in 2018, what do you think would be a, a really good start in a sales career? What, what kind of what kind of organization should someone look at joining? That's a, that's a great question. So and I'll, I'll say it probably because I have a bias to it, but um, I'm recruiting right now. And um, as I'm talking to people, I would generally hear um, a very, very steady undercurrent um, and interest in SaaS. 
So being a true online subscription-based type service. Obviously, we're a B2B um, solution. So this is business selling to businesses as opposed to consumers. So if I was taking what I know now and applying it to myself, if I happen to be graduating and entering the market to be you know, a sales professional, then I would definitely lean personally to um, pursuing um, some type of SaaS solution. And what I mean by that, so there are many forms of sales where you can sell things like hardware, you can sell things that have software, but run on a hardware platform. So what I'm really saying is, you know, if I was starting again, then um, what I would do is day one, I would say, you know what, I'm going to focus on the software as a SaaS, as a solution. And because the outlook for SaaS companies is very, very promising. And you obviously want to, you know, focus your time, energy and talents in an area where you think the outlook for that entire, you know, offering is, is very optimistic. What kind of, um, if someone is, uh, someone's young, someone's new to the field, they want to get into yep. sales and they go for a, a company that is working with SaaS, do, mm -hmm. what kind of training do you think that they should look toward? Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully it's similar to what we do here. So one of the things we do is that we encourage, we, we don't um, sell generally to individuals, although it can happen. We're not going to prevent it. So what I would strongly encourage someone to do from a training perspective would be to immerse themselves into the solution. And wh what I mean by that, Alexander, is like in my current team and the teams that I've been involved with over the past, you know, several companies that I've been working with, um, in title, we might call them an account executive, yeah. but in competency, I would describe them as a product specialist and what that really means. And so I would, the reason I'm bringing those up is if, if I was entering the SaaS space, I would want to become very, very proficient in whatever that um, online tool did. So here um, we, I actually call my team members product specialists. And I do that intentionally to set a couple of things. One is an expectation on the prospect or client side that the person you're dealing with is very knowledgeable about not only the market and the needs of clients, but also the tool itself. So in other words, they don't generally have a technical or pre-sales resource that we, they would lean on. So, so the type of people in my mind that would do well in the SaaS world are those who are, my wording, technically inclined, those that are comfortable getting, you know, getting themselves very proficient and very compelling and articulate around why people want their platform. And then all, obviously being very proficient in explaining it using terminology and nomenclature that's very appropriate. So in our particular case where we are now, project management is a horizontal solution, much like Wi-Fi or telecommunications. What I really mean is there are many, many types of businesses that run projects. So we're not pigeonholed to a particular function like marketing. So in that kind of scenario, how you speak to someone, say, who's a director of marketing and the type of wording you use, the terminology may be quite different than the kind of terminology you would say if it turned out to be an IT uh, department that's using our platform. So that's what I really mean is not only do you have to be confident in the scope and scale and, and uh, functionality of what you're your platform or tool is, but also you have to be very careful um, in the word choice to be very compelling, articulate, 
and making sure the types of words that you're using are, are landing with the, uh, you know, uh, with the particular uh, terminology that resonates with, with your prospect. That's very, very, very valuable. I'm just curious, Rod, you mentioned product specialists, calling the reps product specialists. Yeah. Is there an mm -hmm. advantage to that? If, you know, if you're making a phone call and you're introducing yourself as an account executive, is there an advantage to calling yourself a, a product specialist instead? Well, I, I like it more probably not so much from that kind of call perspective, because in my mind, once you have a conversation, actually underwear, much like you and I are having now, then, you know, it's things like emotion and tone and all those sorts of things to catch in um, and keep the conversation going. So what I, what I, where I find the benefit is more kind of on the email side, very early in the sales cycle where you're trying to engage and engender some interest. So if you're dealing with something or someone who's indicating a product or some kind of specialist, which implies a high degree of acumen, maybe market awareness, et cetera, then perhaps you can learn, uh, maybe, and again, this is a premise, a hypothesis, but maybe the willingness to engage some of the product specialists on the assumption of learning more might be a little bit an easier entry than someone who's obviously trying to sell you something. So mm. I don't know, is it a big deal? Mm, not sure, but is it how we roll currently? Uh, yes, it is. In your bio, I read about the components of a six successful sales team. Yep. Can you tell me what some of the components or the characteristics of a successful salesperson? Sure, you bet. So, so one of them is what I just mentioned. And again, I can speak with most authority, I guess, with what I'm doing currently, which is this interest and um, aptitude to get close to being expert might be too high a bar, but let's call it specialist, where I, I, I kind of like to describe um, a call, let's call it a, an hour-long demo call where you're kind of explaining the platform and the solution and trying to convince someone that, of the merits of it, is that I don't really like to parking lot anything. I'm hoping that there isn't follow-up needed to answer questions. There might be follow-up for other reasons, but maybe not to answer a question. So obviously over time, uh, it's going to take someone some time to be, get that level, but but I would say that kind of um, approach. And in 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 terms of uh, you know the the ideal salesperson, quote unquote, in my mind, it's not the competence to do that because there are you know arguably a lot of intelligent people out there willing to be in sales. So it's really not a competence determination. Like, are you capable of doing that? Sure. But are you, do you want to do it? Is that something that is appealing to you? Is that something where you think you can be authoritative and compelling and articulate? So in my mind, um, an attribute today of someone who's going to be a very, you know, have a long and fruitful uh, career in sales would be someone who has the aptitude and interest in first off understanding sort of technology and the ramifications of things like hosting and security and all those sorts of things, which at least in my mind for a B2B client, those matter. They're gonna, ma maybe they don't matter initially, but they're gonna matter ultimately because often in the sort of selling process we do, uh, and this would again, I would think speak to the kind of characteristic that would be good in a professional salesperson would be, you know, what you talk about, what you emphasize, uh, what you lead with, with an end user, 
would be quite different later in the sales cycle when perhaps you're dealing with someone who's concerned about the security or uptime or integration capability of a solution. So again, the 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 characteristic of a, of a salesperson, I think, that's going to serve them well would be someone where you very, very definitely read your audience and very, very definitely use that to guide and emphasize what you start to you know, lead with what you end with, what act, what next steps you you go with. So, I would say those two things would be definitely key pieces in being what I would determine, you know, a, a well-positioned sales professional, and you know, in 2018, about to enter the SaaS market. And you know, uh, what I often hear is curiosity and listening. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the? What do you think of those? Curiosity, yes, um, yes. But listening, absolutely. And I can give you an example. And I will speak around the scenario, but not indicate any names, obviously. But um, I had, you know, even at this stage of my career, and then this stage, hopefully in my uh, position to be able to coach and develop people, I had someone on my team who we, well, to set the stage for this, Alexander, I mean, you and your your the listeners would need to know. I, I'm I'm somewhat fortunate, I guess, in that I've got clients in 70 countries, seven zero, and uh, wow. so some of the countries, just the nature of the beast, um, are far more price sensitive than others, and um, this this is often an issue for us because we sell around the world in all the countries that we're in in U.S. dollars. Well, so why do I bring this up? So my team. We have this function of an SDR. The majority of our business today is through inbound marketing, so inbound sales. So in other words, people have read reviews or gone to directories or somehow have learned of us. They've landed on our site. They've filled out a form. They've answered some basic questions, name, employee size. Is it a work email? What geography are you? How many users? And that's about it. And that comes into an SDR. So I was on one of these calls with an SDR and it was from a lead, um, a prospect who was from India. And India is one of those countries that are notorious for being very price sensitive. So on the call, and Alex, Alexander, this speaks specifically to listening, on the call, when you start the call, you start to say, so why are you looking for a project management tool? What tools are you using? What tools are you considering not using anymore if you had a platform like us, basic discovery. So at that stage in this particular call, we learned that one, maybe two tools would no longer be required if our tool arrived, a tool like ours arrived. So in other words, they would no longer need to, to use another tool if they used ours. And in that particular case, it was a subscription-based tool. Later in the mm -hmm. same phone call, the person, the prospect, started asking about pricing and this is a bit of a rat hole when you're very early in the cycle so what we generally do is start with the worst case which is list price per month because we reward you know number of users in term and you just give a list price and that's it all other comments all other negotiations all other inferences around discount are for later in the sales cycle with a different person well this particular prospect cottoned on to this and started grilling on the price, which for us is starting price is 29 US dollars per month. That should be the answer to the question. That's it. 
what and they started drilling on it well that's too much this that and the other so what unfortunately happened in this scenario is what should have been about a 20 second conversation and a park saying your product specialist will handle that turned into you know a protracted semi-emotional discussion around price but what unfortunately did not happen was a remembrance earlier in the call that another tool would no longer be used so what i mm. would have done is gone back to i call this interpretive listening mm. Alexander, if you or any of your listeners have a better term for it, but what I really mean is you could have easily gone back to see this prospect and said, look, what's the cost of one of the tools you're no longer going to need? What does that cost you per month, per year, whatever the scenarios? And, and you could just redirect and apply the cost savings of that tool, to the cost of our tool. And it just defrays and defers the whole cost discussion. So listening is crucial. And that's an example just on one phone call, you could easily see the need for that in a full protracted extensive sales cycle that has a number of phone calls and meetings and demos and all that sort of thing. So you definitely need to take the information you glean early or late and always continually use it, you know, to your benefit and hopefully to the client's benefit through the sales cycle. So, Alexander, was that clear? Was I clear enough in describing the importance of listening in that scenario? <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm just wondering, how would you train that? Would it be going over phone yes. calls? and, and pick, pick Very much so. Absolutely. This is experiential. But, you know, I'd like to think it's not too high a bar. But if we, you know, if you and I were doing it and say on a call like this and we debrief it tw twice, I don't really think I need to do bring it up again, do I? So you do, you can't just intellectually acknowledge that you do something and it could improve. You actually have to inst you know, institute it. You have to do something differently. And in this particular case, this person had been well over a year with multiple recordings. And so unfortunately we parted ways. But um, yes, in my mind, this kind of, call it whatever you want, soft skill, interpretive skill, listening skill, call it whatever you want. But this process, this is just a mini example of what I believe is an, a, a fundamental key skill and characteristic of someone who's really good at sales. Not someone who can do it, someone who's really good at it, is that they will become a master of getting what I call discovery, facts, information, opinions out of a prospect and using them effectively throughout the sales cycle until they buy. And Rod, where did you where did you learn your coaching and, and mentoring skills, or, or or were they inherent? That's a great question. So I wasn't that fortunate in having mentors, and even the topic of a mentor wasn't really talked about a lot, you know, twenty odd years ago. So I kind of did it the hard way, and as I like to describe it, I'm cursed and blessed as a thinker. At times, that's terrific, and analytical skills are, you know are a desirable thing at other times maybe that's not so nice but i i do have high aspirations of a few things myself hopefully my team um have a strong belief system so i you know i've i've done a lot of schooling i have two degrees and i took a pretty long look at myself and said i'd not through a mentor i wish i had one saying so what can i do better what can i learn as I go forward so that I'm always on this incremental path of improvement. So for me, it was kind of the school of hard knocks, but I think now 
it's much more appropriate, much more common to get what I would call a true mentoring, uh, a mentor. And I think also um, people are much more amenable to doing it now. Um, that's my personal opinion anyway. Rod, what prevents salespeople from moving ahead? What prevents them from moving ahead? Well, first, I mean, what I would like to, what, what gets them ahead are energy, intelligence, persistence, and eloquence. So if you're neither of those things, in my mind, you're probably not going to go very far. But um, I would say a lot of people um, would start to wonder whether sales is good for them if they're not competitive. And in my mind, this is not so much a description of competence because if you really boil it down, arguably sales, quote unquote, shouldn't be that hard, quote unquote. But um, so it's not competence, but, you know, it's it's just that whole willingness to improve. So if you don't have that, then I don't think you're going to I don't think you're going to do that well because sales is not a static process and it's an emotional process. So if you're not emotionally committed or at least emotionally energetic as you're going through um, a sales cycle, then I don't know that they're going to buy from you, even if the even if the product is great, because um, I've been doing this long enough to know that emotional buy in is crucial. So if you in my mind, if you would do what I would call intellectual selling and not add much emotion to it, then you probably won't go too far, um, or at least you won't advance, I, I guess, in terms of sales leadership. You might be kind of stuck and plateaued at a, you know, an account executive type level. When you say, you know, willingness to improve, I, it, it just sounds like to be in a sales career as an account uh, individual mm -hmm. contributor or yep. a sales leader, if you have that willingness to improve, then if you love if you love to learn, then then this is the right uh, sales trajectory for you. I didn't give you a good answer on curiosity. I think you just provided me one. So I would say if we call what you just described curiosity, and we attach that to what we discussed about already being listening. And I would say those would be two pretty foundational uh, pillars for, you know, what I would call as a, a successful sales practitioner. Rod, in your career, besides the income, what's been the most important thing to you? Besides the income, I would say, um, I would say being able to take this notion of continual improvement and uh, get promotions. I mean, I, I was quite proud to uh, become a, a sales manager. My first sales management position was at Cisco 20 years ago. I was proud at the time. I'm competitive. I won out from other internal um, candidates for that role. So f for my mind, as much now income arguably is directly related to winning, but I am a, a competitive person. But it's but it's not at any expense. I am not the type of person who is going to win a deal at any cost. So I would say that I'm probably most proud of being able to keep um, a very a very deep rooted kind of uh, belief and value system, and still you know have been able to translate that into you know a successful career in helping. 
my team and helping my company perform. Uh, I'm quite excited. I can't mention it directly on this call, but maybe I'll follow up with you. We're on the cusp of a, an announcement in September that I'm quite proud of and is very much related to this performance metric. So I, I would guess I am proud of the fact that I've, I've migrated from being an, you know, and an individual contributor to trying to pay it forward. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why we're talking here today. Uh, I was quite flattered to get your invite. And if there's any way I can help people who are trying to do, you know, some version of what I've done, then I'm, I'm happy to do it. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited to hear what, what's, what's going to happen. All right. You know, Rod, there's been a ton of great advice. You've given so many nuggets. Do you have any any other piece of advice for this this newer generation of sales professionals? I guess the other thing I'd like to mention is just what I would probably describe. Well, so we're I'll set the scenario and then I'll give you the example. So the scenario, as I mentioned, we've got clients in 70 countries and I've got, you know, seven clients in the Fortune 250, two in the Fortune 10. So that's kind of cool. Well, it's very cool. But a lot of people don't know that. So if we've got, you know, a Fortune 10 company, we approach another Fortune 10 company. They'll have no idea who we are. And um, you could say that's a pretty daunting, uh, that's a pretty daunting task, despite the fact that you might have the evidence of fit to meet or exceed the needs, say, of a very, very large enterprise client, which implies a lot of things. It implies that the pricing's right. It implies that the tool lives up to its claims. It it implies that the security claims and capabilities to keep data secure and you know away from breaches and malware attacks and all that sort of stuff. It implies a lot of things. So so what would I say? I would say we ran through I can't under an NDA indicate who it is, but it is a Fortune ten company. So we got an inbound lead from a Fortune 10 company and, you know, went through the process. Obviously, I was heavily involved because of the name. And you start to wonder, because they are time consuming, these types, it took seven and a half months to win this deal. And actually, in, in all honesty, it's not the biggest deal in the history of the company, but it is definitely one of the biggest companies. So... I guess my point would be is that despite the fact or the hypothesis that the client doesn't have a clue who you are, um, can you proceed on the merits and using some of the things that we talked about, listening skills and other things? Um, can you justify emotional and actual time spent to try and win a deal in that kind of scenario? Well, we did. We did it over seven months and we won. So, and, but had you asked me two weeks into what ultimately was a seven and a half month long engagement, you know, if, would you ask me what's the probability of you winning Fortune 10 company X? You know, at that time, I probably would have given it sub, sub 5% or something like that, but we won. So I would say stay diligent, mm. stay optimistic, be true to yourself. Be efficient with your time, but don't give up until you've had a verdict. Setbacks are only setbacks. Verdict is ultimately what matters. 
Excellent. Never give up. Never give up. Never give Absolutely. up. Absolutely. All right, Rod, are you ready for the biggest win sales challenge? Sure. Okay, I've got 15 questions. I'll give you 60 seconds to answer all 15. <laughs> if you're stuck, okay, okay. <laughs> just just say just say pass and I'll move on to the next question. Let's do it. Let's see how many questions you can answer correctly. The score to beat is 9. Okay. I'm putting 60 seconds on the clock. The clock will begin after I ask, I whoa. The clock will begin after I ask you the first question. Are you ready? Let's go. In a typical 60-minute sales call, how many minutes did researchers find the salesperson talked versus the client? 47 minutes, 30 minutes, or 20 minutes? 47. What is telephonobia? Fear of the phone. In Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman, what role did Willie Loman play? Salesman. If you had to eat two frogs, which one should you eat first? Smallest one. True or false, you are allowed to sell your soul on eBay. <laughs> uh, we'll say true on that one. <laughs> Who wrote The Greatest Salesman in the World? The book? Pass. Yes. Where is the best place to sit on a one-on-one -on -one lunch with a prospect or client? Mm. Same side. What does ABC stand for? Always be closing. What's the definition of a cold call? Calling a prospect that has no knowledge of you or your solution. True or false, George Clooney used to sell insurance. True. The film Glengarry Glen Ross depicts a day of two lives of four salesmen. What did they sell? Oh, man. Uh, real estate. Nice. One, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You have eight. Good oh. job. <laughs> Do we do any kind of recap of my messes or is that for another day? Uh, no, let's see here. Okay. So what did, are you passed on something? Didn't you pass on? Uh, I, who wrote the book? I didn't know that one. Oh, Augmandino. Okay. And, oh yes. And, uh, and did you say, okay, you could sell your soul on eBay. Did you say yes? You said I did yes. Say yes that, yeah. Okay. It's false. You cannot sell your soul. Yeah, I guess I knew that, but I, <laughs> I like the answer saying yes. Actually, people, uh, apparently someone was selling their, their soul and then eBay uh, started, put it into their um, policy that you could no longer sell your soul. Well, I think eBay. it's okay to sell it, but who's the fool is going to buy it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, that was very good. Good job. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you for playing my game. You're welcome. All right. So, Rod, it's called the Biggest Win Sales Podcast. Can can you share something about uh, something about uh, another one of your biggest wins? You bet. So, the one I told you was not the biggest win. It was probably the most arduous, but by far the biggest win. Um, uh, so, this for us was a tick below 200k US. So that I'm just being honest. I'm giving you a number. So that's the size of the deal. So the sales cycle, again, was very protracted, multiple stages. Um, in the prospect, we were at the right level because we're dealing with a part owner of the company. So we knew we had the decision maker. Through the cycle, we believed we knew what the decision criteria would be. And then we re-verified re that. And they were you know, quite complex, very technical in nature. We had to do integrations, et cetera. So throughout the entire cycle, months in duration, probably four or five, maybe six months in duration, five, I think it was, um, all through every piece of communication, every written communication that any inclining or any inference around pricing 
said, we don't do anything until you pay us. We don't activate your onboarding, which is kind of training and setup and all those sorts of things. And we don't initiate your subscription. Okay. So, mm-hmm. and we're dealing with a part owner. So as we're doing this, it starts, we start staring down the end of the year. And my, my account executive or my product specialist, um, much like every sales person on the planet is paid on an annual basis, a quota basis. So it matters. So, and we, we compensate and retire quota based on payment, not based on verdict. So in other words, you don't retire your quota until we collect the cash from prospect. So you see where this is going. So we're going through this cycle. It was a big dollar amount. I told you the dollar amount and very late cycle, i.e. the last week of December, someone new wanders into the conversation and it's the CFO. I'm like, hi, who are you? (laughs) I'm the CFO. Yeah. Well, we're dealing with the person's name who's a part owner. So you must be fully up to speed. Am I correct? No, (laughs) I had no idea. I'm like, pardon? Yeah. And so by the way, we do everything net 60. So I'm wanting the full payment in the next week. CFO is telling me they're not paying for 60 days, which eclipses the next year, which means my product specialist and me, because I have an annual quota too, are out, right? They're, you're not going to get it. And yet we'd won the deal. And I'm like, pardon? So at that point, you don't have a strong arguing. You don't have a strong position in the conversation because they are the client and you are the vendor. We hadn't earned the role of partner yet. So I would say now we're a partner, but at that time we were a vendor. So I had to make a personal appeal. I spoke about the cycle. I spoke about our intentions. I spoke to the fact that every single piece of communication had indicated that it was payment upon receipt. So in other words, not net 60. And then I implored that our team, including the salesperson, had done a terrific job. That's why we got the verdict and asked, can you take that into consideration? And can you please reconsider and step up and keep both parties on the side of this deal whole? So the same, you know, in the vein of being a partner because they bought a three-year deal. So that's a partnership. That's a long-term deal. Can you please do that to keep all the people whole? Yes or no? So CFO I'd never spoken to before. Said, "Mm, I'll go speak to the person who I was dealing with. Can we speak again in 24 hours? This is now the second last day of the year. So they called back. I had zero faith that they were going to step up because she was very clear, very capable woman. (laughs) Wasn't really wanting to listen to me much at all. Came back and back and they ended up paying. They turned it around in what, 24 hours or 36 hours, whatever it turned out to be. They paid about 65% of it um, and kept everyone whole. And that was enough to make myself and that person have a pretty good year. And it actually quite ironically kicked us off the next year with a pretty good uptick. So that's what happened. And so what would be this story, if you want to call it that, is in sales, you have to ask for it. So I asked for I asked for a favor. I wouldn't describe it that. I would ask for an indication that they view this undertaking as much as a partnership as we viewed it. And I got a 60% answer when I think 24 hours earlier, she would have happily given me nothing. 
Oh, wow. I can just imagine the shock and just falling off your seat when the CFO entered. So I'll tell you this, like this was such a big deal and a cornerstone client for us. So I, my CEO wanted to sit in on this call, both of them. And I'm like, no way. I'm already sort of anxious and nervous about it. I don't need someone else, you know, giving me all the facial cues and other things that I'm going to see in case we get a no. Right. So I don't want to do that. So anyway, I, I managed to walk into his office. Guess what? I got, you know, I got 60 or 65 percent of the, the deal and it was big enough to move the needle and everyone was happy. So that was that was pretty cool. That was uh, a true war story without the names of the parties involved. I'm just curious because the, the word emotion has come up a couple times when you had that conversation <laughs> with the CFO. Did emotion yep. come into play? Did emotion help steer that 65 percent? I totally believe the answer to that is yes. I don't think I could have had that call without being emotion, at least be emotive. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make a very strong case for the person on my team who for all intents and purposes had their, done their job admirably. And why are they being scalded by having, you know, a fairly material payment term somehow being overlooked or not shared with the CFO who actually, you know, triggers the payment. So that would have been a learning saying note to self, having it in writing isn't of itself sufficient to know that you are going to get the payment, you know, when you expect. Well, it was really great to connect with you. Can you please let the listener know how to connect with you? And if there's anything else that you'd like to add, please do. The floor is yours. I appreciate that, Alexander. So um, to any who are listening, um, I'm happy to connect with you via LinkedIn, Rod, Weir, Easy Projects, any of those, I think you'll find me. Um, the other thing I want you to know is that I do some volunteer work at uh, Western. Um, I graduated twice from the Ivy School, uh, the business school there, so both undergrad and master's. And um, through my networking for the past three or four years, um, I've now in a position to help coach the fourth year um, HBAs or undergrads uh, around the consulting gigs that they receive from uh, businesses. So those get vetted and assigned and then I get paired up with a prof. So uh, if anyone on the call, um, A, um, knows anybody in that program or B, knows some younger folks who might be entertaining the idea to go to a program like that, then uh, know that myself and people like me um, try and help um, young, uh, capable students learn. And uh, it's not necessarily directly sales focused, but it obviously could be. And I'm quite proud to say that two of the five groups that I, uh, I was involved with last year actually uh, managed to get their proposals and ideas and analysis that they were presenting, their recommendations. Um, they managed to actually bring it up to the board, uh, board level of the two organizations. One was a not-for-profit, one was for-profit. Nice. So um, so I guess, you know, um, to be a good um, business steward, uh, I'm happy to share things sales, but obviously um, in that particular way, I, I'm able to help people on bigger, uh, uh, bigger items as well, or broader items as well than, uh, than just sales. So again, just reach out to me in uh, LinkedIn and maybe, uh, maybe we'll have a reason to speak directly. Hey, Rod, uh, earlier, you mentioned about doing some recruiting. Did, do you want to, to mention anything while, while, while we're here? 
Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm very glad you asked me. Yes. So any on the call, um, I am actually recruiting for two positions. One of them, the position we have right now is most of our sales are from an inbound perspective, but I'm actually looking to hire someone who can conduct an outbound effort. So this is reaching out to clients, you know, to prospects and trying to convince them we did it for them. We can do it for you. What I would call a classic outbound role. We're very, very well situated from a tools perspective, Salesforce, SalesLoft, Pardot, all that sort of stuff. So again, I think you've heard from this call, the types of things that I look for, SaaS, you know, good listening, comfortable, technical, et cetera. And I also have a more senior role. It's called account director. Um, and this is someone who can help me um, capitalize. Well, first off, advance our position with some of the Fortune 500 and 250 clients that we have, so take our starting point and grow them. Um, and then also take the evidence that we've done it for Ford, we can do it for GM, that kind of concept. We've got a very large, and Ford, by the way, is not a client, but if you take the example that we've done it for a very large enterprise client A, why can't we do it for large enterprise client B? So uh, that account director has two roles to help grow and expand our position in the Fortune 500 clients that we already have, and then also help us uh, secure some additional. So if either of those are of interest, or if you know anyone who might be interested um, in those kind of roles, I would say the easiest thing to do would be send an email to me directly. It's rod.w, the first letter of my last name, so rod.w at easyprojects.net. Great, great. And and where where is Easy Projects? Yeah, we're up in um, northern Toronto in North York. So the position is located in kind of the Finch and Dufferin area, if you know the streets. So it's well situated for cars and it's well situated for transit. Thanks again, Rod. You're very welcome. Well, that concludes today's episode of the Biggest Win Sales Podcast. Stay tuned for the bonus portion of the show, the podcast and a podcast, the Sales Podcast Improv. Listener, if you'd like to connect with me, send me an email at alexander at biggestwin.ca or call my office at 647-417-0517. Thanks so much for listening. Have yourself a wonderful day and goodbye for now. Welcome to the Sales Podcast Improv. This is a micro-podcast about a sales interaction with a sales professional and a customer. I wrote a bunch of words, cut them out, and my dad, Alexander, placed them in a box. While you hear this message, he's picking a random word. He and his guests will create a three to five minute sales improvisation on that word. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye. Oh, oh, this is a very, very tropical-like store. Sir, kind sir, I've come to buy yes. bugs. You have. Oh, um, and, and do you have any particular bug in mind? Like, uh, we have a whole range of bugs here. We have slugs. We have hard-shelled bugs. We have bugs that can fly. We have some bugs that can make things like wax or honey. So what are you in the hunt for?
Hmm. Well, that sounds uh, like you have a, a wide assortment of bugs. I'm looking for mm. bugs that are very colorful and yeah. that they will, you know, help keep the rodents away. Do you have any colorful bugs that will help keep <laughs> rodents away? So what you're basically telling me is that you're looking for a carnivorous uh, type of bug, one that can be of a hunter um, yes. But it has to be a good-looking hunter. Am, am I correct? Did I did I hear you? Did I hear you accurately? You are correct. I used to have a cat, but the cat had hair everywhere, <laughs> and it kept bothering me for food. I figured, mm-hmm. you know what? Maybe I should just get some bugs. Well, so over here, you see the size of these beetles in the claws. Wow! So these are very, very compelling. They don't move very quickly, mm. and about every eighteen months, maybe sooner, they molt their exoskeleton. Oh. And so I know that's not hair, but it's they they do come with debris. So that would be one option for you. Uh, but my recommendation for you. Um, these come from Australia. I don't know if you know this, but Australia has nine of the ten most deadliest um, insects in the world. Ooh. And this one, I think, is number six or seven. Yes. You can see its broad back. It's quite colorful. It's a dull orange in color. It's actually called a millipede. As you can mm-hmm. see, it's about a foot in length. And it's one of the most poisonous bugs on the planet. So I guarantee you, depending on the vermin, if it's maybe it's a very aggressive guinea pig or maybe it's a rat maybe it's a tiny little mole maybe it's a mouse don't know what you're dealing with but i can guarantee you this millipede will be able to handle it and for you had you come last week um i would have had to charge you a lot because um i i only had one but i got another one so i'm actually in a position to give you a deal um if you can make a decision in the next five minutes um, it would only cost about 99 bucks. So oh, what do you say? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, and it, it, you've touched on the button because I have, there's many aggressive guinea pigs that have just started flocking. It's, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it in the news. Oh, yeah, the parasitic uh, ravenous guinea pigs. Yeah, I right. mean, you gotta you got to go out with boots on, otherwise they're going to nip your toes. That's right. So this, um, this uh, millipede, uh, deadliest number six, um, how mm-hmm. would, is there a lot of um, maintenance? Like, I, I, I'm not hardly ever at home. Mm-hmm. Very, very, I mean, it can live under a rock. Um, you definitely want it to be in a place it can't get out of because it may kill your dog or something like that, which mm-hmm. I don't think you want to have happen. But other than that... If you can just have it fed, I would say, like, it just needs to catch a rodent probably about every seven to ten days. Okay. So if you, you think you have that kind of volume, so it's irritating, but it's not like you've got, you know, hundreds of these happening every day, then I think I think it would be a match made in heaven. Yes, that sounds wonderful. What a fantastic store. I can walk in here and buy a millipede to kill aggressive guinea pigs. You've got a deal. Ring me up. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any need for, say, a praying mantis or ladybugs or anything like dragonflies? Dragonflies are my favorite bug. Eh? They eat mosquitoes, which I think are horrendous. But I know we're getting off topic. Well, but if you have any interest, just let me know. Well, you, uh, you know, some may perhaps something uh, to mate with the with the millipede or keep <laughs> keep them company. I don't know if dragonflies can do that, but. Yeah, we're going to have the first GMO insect farm. I like it. Excellent, excellent. What is this store called? It's called Lawrence and Arabia Bug Him. It's really weird, and I haven't been able to find .com, so it's actually .ca, because apparently Canadians have a voracious appetite for millipedes who can eat any vermin. I don't know if it could take down a beaver, though. It might. 
Oh. Well, I'll take I'll take it out into the at co- uh, the cottage next week. Thank <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You have a good day now. Hope to see you again. Bye.